Well, good morning, everyone. What a great presentation, Pastor Dennis. Thank you so much for a great job uh, celebrating the history. Many of you have been here for some years now and been able to see the history. I'm just getting to know the history. Um, I'm only here a couple of months, and um, I'm just glad that uh, I was enriching, my wife was as well, to see what God has been doing, what he continues to do, and we're excited. So we're, we're, we're starting a new series called Empowered Prayer. One of the things that's very vital in a church ministry is prayer. And we're going to talk about it for a couple of weeks and see the importance of it, as I know this church has been praying for many years and will continue. And we want to see God at work moving forward through prayer. We're, we're establishing in these last few months the essentials of ministry, the essentials of church. And prayer is communication with God, relationship with God, having that engagement, having to embrace his goodness and his, and his grace, that's what really truly prayer is, communicating with God and knowing him. And so I have a story for you uh, this morning. One of the most um, famous evangelical leaders of the past 40 years has been Chuck Swindle. Um, if, if you don't know who he is, he's written many books. He is today, I think, 84 years old and still the senior pastor of his church preaching. He's in Plano, Texas. We had the chance to get to meet him. He was the president at the, at the seminary where I attended and graduated from and now is the chancellor. A great man. What I love about him is that he laughs at a lot of things. He has a lot of fun. And so um, he has a story in one of his books called Laugh Again. I really, truly enjoyed it. I wanted to share it with you as a, a woman who had shared a story with him. And so I'm just going to read it along in his book and see if you can follow with me. So she wrote to him a letter, and it says, Humor has done a lot to help me in my spiritual life. How could I have reared 12 children starting at age 32 and not have had a sense of humor? After your talk last night, I have enjoyed some relaxing moments with my friends I met here. I told them I got married at age 31. I didn't worry about getting married. I left my future in God's hand. But I must tell you, every night I hung a pair of men's pants on my bed and knelt before to pray at my bed, this prayer. Father in heaven, hear my prayer. And grant it if you can. I've hung a pair of trousers here. Please fill them with a man. The following Sunday, I read that humorous letter, this is Charles speaking now, to our congregation, and they enjoyed it immensely. I happened to notice the different reactions of a father and his teenage son. The dad laughed out loud, but the son seemed preoccupied. At that particular Sunday, the mother of this family had stayed home with their sick daughter. Obviously, neither father nor son mentioned the story, because a couple of weeks later, I received a note from the mother. Dear Chuck... I'm wondering if I should be worried about something. It has to do with our son. For the last two weeks, I've noticed that before our son turns the light out and goes to sleep at night, he hangs a women's bikini over the foot of his bed. Should I be concerned about this? Now, you can use prayer in any way you can to see if God wants to answer your prayer. Uh, young men, be careful. I don't know if I would advise that, but you can have some fun if you want. But uh, he had passion. He had passion. This young man thought, you know, if that worked for that woman who's got 12 children, maybe this is going to work for me. 
But you got to laugh a little bit. we got to have a sense of humor because God created us. When we got together for prayer before the first service, even Pastor Dennis said, God, you have a sense of humor because you created each one of us. And you brought us together for a purpose. I mean, just think about it. You can't think, think too seriously about yourself or about the situation around you. You've got to know that God created us for a purpose. But I believe also that he created us to pray and created us to be empowered by prayer. And so I want to ask you a few questions as we move along here. What does it mean to be empowered? Well, the word has two meanings that I want to share with you. One, it says, gives someone the authority or power to do something. It gives a person freedom to act on behalf of a project or a specific action. Another definition says, makes someone stronger or more confident, especially in controlling their life and claiming their rights. Now, these are external factors that create a confidence within an internal person. But if a, if a person has freedom to lead and accomplish a specific task, this person could be more empowered and confident to accomplish further goals and actions. If your boss gives you a project at work and you accomplish it well, what does that do to you? Do you begin to gain confidence? However, the opposite, you were given a project and you failed miserably. What does that do to you? Will you feel empowered to attack the next job? Where's your confidence? See, these are just based on external factors, but now I ask the question of this now. Does God empower his people to act? Does God give us a task and say, go for it. You have the ability to do it. Just go for it. It sounds reasonable. It sounds like a great plan. We even can use familiar scripture to back it up. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But when we are a people of action and want to get things done, do we just say do it? Is that all it takes? Just get up and do it? Just like Nike, just do it? What about prayer? Where does prayer fall into the story? So then I ask this, should, should we act, then pray? Should we pray with passion? So I ask these questions to kind of set us up here because... Sometimes we, don't, we, we think we have to act before we pray because we're familiar with Christianity. Sometimes we're 30 years down the road in the Lord and we think we could just do what comes natural. We think that because we've done this before, it just comes natural and saying, let's just do it again because it's happened before. It's the way God acts. Or is it that we have to be a passionate people that says, wait a minute, what does God think in this situation? Should I pray before I act? See, there's a tension that exists there. And we have to understand what is God calling us, but the passion behind it. Because sometimes our prayers can sound like this. Well, Lord, I'm really tired, you understand. You created the world, and I'm sure that that was an exhausting day. But I'm sure you need a break once in a while dealing with people like me. Lord, you know my heart. You're sovereign. Take care of it. I'm tired. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes <laughs> prayers can go like that. Sometimes we just lack passion. Sometimes we struggle. We're exhausted. We're physically, mentally, socially exhausted. We're spiritually exhausted, and we don't know how to respond. Does passion mean that it's part of our personality, or does passion mean that it's something that's welling up in us? You know, I looked at, uh, you know, I've asked the question too, but here's where I think prayer can sometimes be focused on. We think that whenever we're praying, we could almost show a sign of weakness. I know that we would never say that in a Sunday school. We would never say that in the midst of other Christians. But deep down, when we have to depend on God, 
so immensely and so intensely on God. Sometimes deep down within our flesh, we think, man, am I this weak that I need to depend on God this much? Sometimes our pride gets in the way and we avoid prayer. Sometimes our comfort becomes our obstacle. In a research, Pew Research in 2014, there were many demographics and specific areas of what, why, and of who the prayer. For the sake of time, I'll just simply say this. These were the results of that particular Pew result, or Pew Research uh, result. Women are more likely to pray than men on a daily basis. Married couples were more likely to pray daily than not. Those with a higher income pray less. Those with a higher education pray less. What does this say? Are we in need? How do we translate this in our church? We have to continue to ask that question. So as we look at the book of Nehemiah today in the Old Testament, we understand, we have to understand the background. So I want to encourage you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah chapter 1, because in the background of this, we have the 70 years of captivity. God even identifies Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, Babylon the, his own servant. And God had to discipline his people from sin to judge them, to deport them to a foreign land, to be under someone else's leadership and reign. And God would call this person his servant. He had to deal and judge and discipline his people because of sin. And so we're looking at the story, but what it caused the people to do is to depend on God. There were a couple of deportations that occurred during this time period. One of them was in 538 B.C., which was 70 years prior, or 70 years after, when it started around 609 B.C., when um, Nebuchadnezzar overcame Egypt, and then 605, he overcame the whole area, and then he overtook uh, the area of Jerusalem and Israel and all of Samaria. He overcame the entire area through battles. And in 597 or so, he overcame Jerusalem. And then it went to about 538 B.C. where they were able to return to the land. That was the first. And we see that in Ezra 1 through 6. And in the book of Ezra, the second deportation, 458 B.C., was from Ezra 7 through 10. And then the third one was 445 B.C., which was under Nehemiah, the prophet, and King Artaxerxes. So we see that Nehemiah in his background, he, the word, the name means the Lord comforts. And here he was, the king's cupbearer, which today is considered a modern-day butler. So he took care of the king. You couldn't get out of the job. Once you're appointed, you're there for life. There was no way out. You die, and then you're done. Can you imagine that job? Because this is what his job was, to taste all drinks, wine, to make sure they weren't poisonous before the king would receive them. Can you imagine that job today if you're a husband and you go, okay, honey, not sure if I will make it tonight. I'm going to work, but remember our will. Don't remarry or I will return and haunt you. Don't nag the kids too much. Make sure the kids put the toilet seat down. Don't leave hair in the sink and don't sell my tools. Otherwise, I love you. Can you imagine that? I mean, men, you can relate. Don't sell my tools. Give it to someone in the family. But the people of God would sin often and be judged. And why would Nehemiah be interested in returning back to Jerusalem after being informed of what was happening in Jerusalem? So look with me, if you can, as we look at the life of Nehemiah and just ask the question, 
you know, for a passion for prayer is what was Nehemiah's passion? We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 1. We're going to just stay here for just a couple of minutes. It says in verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali, now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa in the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Verse 3, and they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who have survived the exile have, have um, been in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now the wall is important because the wall was established to fortify a city from any of the four nations to come in and overtake the city. And because they were not taking care of Jerusalem after the deportation, what happened was it came to ruins. When Nehemiah heard this, he was moved. He was moved with passion. You have to understand, this is where he's comfortable as a cupbearer. Although his life was on the line, he was comfortable. He was serving the king in a nice palace, in a good contextual situation. And here he had to understand the importance of it. But many of us, when we hear about difficult situations and trials and all, we just said, oh, how terrible. How terrible. I'm so sorry. Anyway, did you hear about the uh, new quiche that I just made? It's just really good. I really just, you know, you start to go and you change the subject and you move to the next thing. You don't think about it. It's kind of like golf. See, I grew up on golf, believe it or not. I was a caddy. I was a young man around 11, 12 years old. I became a pro caddy. I was even considering being a pro. Now today, I just hope I can hit the ball. But years ago, when I used to be able to play, we used to always talk about taking the club back. And when you take the club back, it's important because you take it back, you turn your hips, and your arms extend to here. But when you go to follow through, when you, your body has to transfer along with the club head. Often what people do is they take the club back and they get their, their body swaying ahead. Now all of a sudden, my body's before my arms and my path of my swing will determine where the ball's going to go. So if I don't turn my hips back or if I don't move my hips, then if I don't go through, then there's where that V is, right here. It's, it's hitting the club head, my eyes are over the ball, and I'm making contact with the ball. And so often now what people do is they can take, they used to say, Bruno, man, what a great backswing. I used to be able to take a backswing, right? But then I was like, okay, okay. But now the follow through. If I don't follow through well, the ball's going to go everywhere. I caddied. And all people will say, Bruno Hacker, Bruno Hacker, you're a hacker. And see, what happens is when you're caddying, you either go straight to the hole or you go right and you go left because the player, when you're caddying for, is constantly hitting it right and left. Before you know it, you've, you've walked about 10 miles, but the course is only 5 miles because you're doing this every hole. So growing up, I had to do that with two bags. But I noticed that people didn't follow through well. It's kind of like with prayer. We listen to the story. We even seem concerned. We even say it's terrible. But it's like a backswing. It's a good backswing. But we don't follow through. And you'll never be able to play a game. You'll never be able to be in the game. It's like any other thing. Like baseball, if you don't follow through with your hips and transfer your, your weight, you're not going to be able to hit the ball far. And I think that's the same thing. See, Nehemiah, he heard about this. 
But he did more than just stop and pray. We find out in the story that he does much more than that. And so it's important to understand that follow-through is key in understanding this whole process. So what are some of the things that we have to understand, first of all, is that Nehemiah was willing to be uncomfortable rather than comforted. He heard the story. He was moved with passion. And he realized that there was something going on. He wanted to go back. He knew that the city of Jerusalem needed help, that God was calling on him. But he had an impossible task in front of him. He had to enter into the presence of the king and ask him if he could go. That's impossible. When you're appointed to the king, you're there till death. You cannot leave. The king will never allow you to leave. You serve him, you serve him well to your end day, to the last day. And see, this is what was happening. He had a passion welling up in his, in his heart and his mind. And he said, I am willing to live uncomfortable for the sake of doing God's will, to seeing a rest- restoration in Jerusalem. He was willing. He wasn't willing to say, hey, I'm sorry, but you guys are going to have to work on something else 500 miles away. I'm serving the king. I'm not even going to ask him. That's an impossible thing. I won't even, I'm too fearful. It's just no way it's going to happen. I'm not going to do it. No, he was moved with passion. And he trusted God in prayer, and he went to the Lord in prayer. And I think that's what God is saying. He's saying to each other. Because see, the word pain. Even in Latin and Greek, it gives the same kind of concept. It's the capacity to feel strong emotion, like suffering. It's agony. It's passion. Like when we hear the passion of the Christ, Jesus Christ went to the cross. It was uncomfortable. He didn't want to be comforted. He left eternity. He left the throne to come here in eternity, to here on earth, to become like man, to die as a passionate role for the Father so that through his life, through his death, the resurrection, you and I have the opportunity to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's that passion. It's that agony. He was willing to do it. And see, you and I, when we understand we see Nehemiah, he didn't want to be comforted. He was willing to be uncomfortable. With prayer, you and I have got to understand it's not simple. It's not easy. You're going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be something you're not going to like. But you and I, as tired as we can be, we have to turn to the Lord in prayer. Because if we don't, then we're not going to see great things happening for the kingdom of God. And so we have to see that as a move of God. So we need to be led by conviction, not criticism and complaining. We don't manipulate people to get our way. We must be convicted, and conviction comes through prayer. Conviction comes when God is doing a work. Look at verse 3. This is what drew Nehemiah more than anything. You might see... Uh, You might see reproach there in one version, but in ESV it says great trouble and shame. See, that word reproach means the shame and disgrace that he heard moved him to prayer, which then we'll find out in the book of Nehemiah that he acted on it by going. But it moved him to prayer. It was that move of shame and disgrace. So, So the idea is that he was doing that with the intention of saying, wow. But here's another thing. In Jeremiah 15, 5, there's actually a prophecy 150 years earlier. Jeremiah in 15, 5 said this, The Lord cried out, Who in the world will have pity on you, Jerusalem? Who will grieve over you? Who will stop long enough to inquire about how you are doing? Nehemiah was willing. 
God called. This was prophetic. God called his prophet. He said, I want you to go. I want you to deal. This is my covenant. These are my people. This is the city which I've appointed you people in. This is the place of the city of David. But the beauty of it is that God established Jerusalem and God said, I'm going to place my hand on it. I have my covenantal loyalty there and my covenant is going to be fulfilled through and through because I'm faithful to my word. And so God moving through Nehemiah knew that this was his calling. And so I say we must pray before we act. We must consider the things. We must draw close to God. We must draw close to God in, in suffering and pain and agony. We must ask God to move us in passion. See, let me ask you the question. What was the last time you cried out to God? When was the last time you were so passionate about something you saw God move you on your knees? See, you and I have to be so excited and passionate about seeing someone come to faith in Jesus Christ that you and I have to be willing to give up every preference we want in the church for anything in Christianity for the sake. Are you willing, am I willing to do that, to give everything up for the kingdom? Are we willing to say, okay, it's not about me. I'm willing to give it all up, Lord, if I can see someone, my neighbor, the person at work, someone who I've seen for a friend for a long time, my brother or my sister, someone, you and I, are we willing to cry out to God in passion to see him do the impossible thing? You might say, but no, Pastor Vernon, you've got to understand, my brother, he, it's impossible. Yeah, I understand, because I have a brother like that, too. But, you know, my neighbor, it's just, it's impossible. I don't think we can reach them. Oh, I understand, because I've had neighbors, too. <laughs> Oh, but you don't understand the person at work. And I'm like, oh, I understand. I've worked with a lot of people out there. It's, I know, it's crazy. But have you cried out with passion? That's what it's going to take for each one of us here at Grace Church. We have to have that passion. And it's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be uncomfortable. And so it's important for us to recognize that in our lives. See, he was also committed to act rather than being casually concerned. That's another thing which you got to understand in seeing this, that he was committed to prayer. Throughout this book, 12 times in the, in the book of Nehemiah, 12 times in different times, Nehemiah prayed before any difficult situation. He prayed. And he saw the Lord bring it through and deliver it. He saw God's hand. He recognized it. He was careful that he knew Every time when there was a difficult situation, he trusted God. I mean, right here in this prayer that he's about, about to hit in verse 4 was a prayer to approach the king. And he had to believe God that he was going to do the impossible. Also, he saw obstacles as God opportunities. He saw obstacles as God opportunities. Look with me to verse 4. When I heard these things... These words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the Lord, the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. That's what he was doing. He was crying out to God. He was weeping. He was mourning. He was saying, God, I'm comfortable here, but I need to be uncomfortable. I need you to move me out of this place. But, Lord, I need you to do it. It's impossible. How can I move from this place, from this castle, from around with this king? I have to. I need your hand on this. Lord, please do a work. And God was doing the work. But he had to cry out. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. 
Paul who cried to the Lord through tears because the Jews wanted to destroy him. It was a reproach, and he knew in order for the Lord to call him 500, over 500 miles away from his present situation, he would need the Lord to deliver him according to his will. It was a huge obstacle. But we must change our philosophical mindset regarding the ministry of the kingdom. Impossible situations are not obstacles, but the Lord's opportunities to create amazing testimonies so much more that we can trust them and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nehemiah believed the Lord wanted to revitalize his city and his people for his plan. The Western American Christian focus so much on the obstacle and are defeated before they even pray. In fact, most Christians believe they need to have an answer before they pray because they don't want to put the time to pray because they think it's a waste of time. Today, it's recorded, an average Christian prays about four or five minutes a day, and yet we expect to see God's hand. So we've got to ask God to change our hearts. God is doing great things for great reasons. Let me tell you something about a story. Four years ago, my daughter had just gotten her license. We were in a situation, we were in debt, and I had looked at our, 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 our plan, our budget, and I said, wow, one of our cars needs to go. So I looked up and researched and realized we were underwater with one of our cars. We were in tight, tight budget, really, really difficult times, and I said, Lord, I need you to come through. I started to cry out with great passion. I said, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray you'll get rid of this car. I pray, Lord, that you will remove it from us. I pray you'll bring someone here who could buy this car that would allow us to get out of this situation. I don't care if we don't make any money, Lord, just don't let me lose money. God, I'm going to believe you to do a work. I started praying on my knees, crying out to God every day. I started laying my, I just lifted up my hands over. I was in my family room and I was just saying, Lord, the car in the driveway, specifically that car, the white car in the name of Jesus, Lord, God, remove this. I was crying out to God for weeks. I was believing God for a miracle. I didn't know who was going to come and buy it, but I said, Lord, I need you. Three weeks later, my daughter woke up in the morning to go to a meeting at church. She was part of a team. Um, she was only 17. She was getting involved in ministry. And my wife and I um, said, sweetheart, be careful. You've only been a month driving. Just be slow. Drive slow. Okay, Dad. She left. It was like 825 in the morning. And we were getting ready for church. And um, I don't know, something was welling in my spirit, like something was about to happen. I, you know, I don't know, it's intuition or what, the Lord just kind of revealed it to me. But the night before, we were praying with some people, and they were like, you know, I just feel like I need to pray peace over you right now. I said, okay, I'll receive it. The next morning, my, my daughter goes out. Five minutes later, my phone blows up. It's my daughter. And right before I answered, I said, something went wrong. She's crying on the phone. She got in an accident. She uh, made too quick of a turn going against traffic on the left, and she's crying. And I said, honey, are you okay? She goes, daddy, daddy. She goes, the other car is flipped over. I said, okay. Where are you? She goes, I'm okay. Everybody's okay, daddy. Everybody's okay. And she's crying. I said, okay, honey, sweetheart, just hold on. Where's the other car? Is it over, flipped over? She goes, no, it's down in the ravine. I just let it go. I had to jump out. It was like five miles an hour. I just jumped out. I'm like, what? She goes, it was smoking. I'm like, Okay? All right, so I said, uh, so then she said, um, Daddy, please, guys, I'm coming. All right, I'm giddy. Joy's like, you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. I'm singing a song to the Lord and praising God. It's like, this is weird. But I was just like, okay, praising God, driving over, and the Lord's giving me peace. Pull up, and I see the car's on its back, the other car, up on a bank. 
I'm pulling up. Cops are there. Fire, you know, fire trucks are there. Everybody's there. Maria's up on the hill. I ran over to her. Are you okay? Yes. Everybody okay? Okay. I look down over at the car. It's down the road a little bit. It's about 40 mile per hour, you know, road. So it's over into like a dip, like in a little ditch. I said, okay, it's interesting. It's just got a little, you know, a little bit of a dent here and there. The front end's pretty banged up. The Lord said, your car's gone. I said, what, Lord? She says, I've removed your car. I said, but Lord, we haven't even had the total loss assessment. We don't even know. He goes, it's removed, son. I said, but Lord, don't we need to do the total loss assessment before we determine if it's, he says, it's done. I've removed your car. And uh, lo and behold, we did the, we, we got the total loss assessment. I was underwater. I not only made money on the car, I calculated how long we had the car, and I made 70 bucks more than what I owed the car in the 20 months that I had it. You see, I, I simply cried out to God with great passion, believing he could do the impossible. Everyone was saying, no, Bruno, it's not possible. It's underwater. You're not going to get anybody to buy your car. You're going to lose money. I said, but God can do this. Now, Here's why I'm sharing this. I cried. I didn't say, oh, Lord, by the way, you know, let my daughter get in an accident. Let the car flip over. Let the car just be broken in half. Uh, Lord, just do it. Let it be in a ditch. Everything happened. My daughter almost died. Yeah, Lord, that's exactly how you wanted. No, I just was thinking, God, get someone crazy enough to buy this car at a price where it's going to help me at least make even. And no, God did it. No exaggeration. The Lord did. He did an impossible thing that made possible. But we cried out, I cried out with passion, believing God. There's many times where I've seen that in my life, and I've seen God do a work. Now, does it happen all the time? No, but it happens in different ways. And with Nehemiah, he was crying with great passion, moving forward, believing God to do a work that only he can do the impossible. An obstacle was an opportunity for God to be at work. So we have to think now, this last point I want to share here is this. He saw obstacles as opportunities to ignite his passion, not create passivity toward God. See, sometimes we see obstacles and we give up. We don't pray even. We think it's, not, it's like it's not possible. But God's saying, no, believe the impossible because I can do the impossible. And see, the problem was very simple, that Jerusalem was in fire, destroyed by fire. The walls were down, and Nehemiah just simply prayed and asked God. But here's what was another thing that was amazing. He persevered. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, you see where it says, in the month of Kislev. Now, just put your finger there. In chapter 2, it says, in the month of Nisan. That's four months between. From November, December in our calendar to about March and April. He prayed and cried out for four months that God would do the impossible. We pray, we seek, we chase, we hunt saying, God, what is your will? I want to believe you to do impossible things. God has done that throughout generation and generation because in the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God wants to continue to do the work. Because of his prayer and his passion to believe God to do the impossible, you and I are here standing because where God preserved his people and his nation through the Jewish nation, through his people, today you and I as a Gentile people have been able to come to faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus, who's the son of God, came in the lineage of David here on earth as human flesh, but yet 100% God 
100% man, died on the cross, resurrected, and you and I have salvation because of that. The perseverance of just going through that, preserving his people, and the salvation that we have, now you and I have an opportunity to share that with someone else. You and I have got to get excited about the fact that God is faithful to his word, and he will never, ever leave. His name is above all names. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we've got to get passionate about that. We've got to believe God can do the impossible. We've got to stop looking at things logically. We've got to believe God for the spiritual. Now, it's not crazy to believe him. It's crazy when we think we can do it. It's crazy when we think it's about us, when we think it's we're doing the work. We're doing nothing. It's only through his power through us. We need to be like Nehemiah, humbled, crying out, believing God for the impossible. That's what we have to see. So where does our passion come? What should be our passion? What should be our passion? Where should we see God at work? I believe that just like Nehemiah, we need to see his presence. We need to be passionate about his presence. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting before and praying before the God of heaven in his presence. In the eternal sanctuary, in the heavenly realms, praying and seeking and passionately asking him to do the work, believing that when we surrender and ask for help and know that he can only do it, then we're leaning on him and depending on him in his presence. And that's where through our shortcomings, through our difficulties, through our inner battles, through our fears, through our worries, through our failures, through our dreams, through our ridiculous ideas, our pain and our laughter, God is saying, come to me, child, I love you. Through, your son, through his son, we can go. We have access to him and we can go in his presence. He's made it possible for you and I. And with passion, we can do it because he's done the work. And if he's done that, then we can grow closer through our vulnerabilities, through our in, 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 through our dependency in him, through our brokenness, through our hurts, through our pains, through all that we struggle with. We have to be passionate about his presence. Secondly, we have to be passionate about God's promises. We've got to understand that when God promises something, it's going to come through. He is faithful to his word faithful to his name. This is his word. This is his church. You are his people. God wants to do a work, but he's, it's, it's really simple. Standing on the promises of Christ our King. Standing on his promises daily, asking him to do a work. I mean, look what he said when he prayed in verse 5. He said, O Lord God, O Yahweh Elohim. He, he spoke to him specifically. He cried out to his name, of heaven, your abode, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, meaning, Lord, hear my prayer. I'm crying out to you with passion. His passion grows as he begins to get into the presence of God. He goes, hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to me. I'm standing on your promises. Now hear my heart, Lord. Here's to what I'm going to share. That I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sin of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. Meaning it's not just, well, Lord, have mercy on them. He's saying, we all have sinned, Lord, have mercy on us. And his passion grew to know that God is God, awesome, and he's not. 
And that's when we grow. See, the actual, there's a, a, the Hebrew words of covenant and love coming together there, the words of covenant and steadfast love is a hendeas. It's a coming together that really means loving covenant loyalty, meaning God is lo loyal to his covenant, and he loves with compassion and seeks and chases after you and I. He longs for our you and I to enter into his presence with passion. He wants our passion to grow. He wants to show us that it's not about the destination, but it's about the journey. It's about learning about being in his presence. And so it's important for us to see that he wants us to stand on his promises. Lastly, he says, the passion of God's plan. We've got to have the passion of God's plan. Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you. And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you've commanded your servant Moses. Remember, here's a good key word, right? Remember or recall. In the Hebrew, it means to call to mind. Remember, it always attaches to the covenant. Even in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul said that remember Jesus Christ. Remember, it's a Jewish concept that simply says, remember the covenant. Remember God. Remember what he's done. And God, who, when he promises, he promises with the intention to keep us. And he, you know, he, throughout Nehemiah, he says it about seven different times. He uses the word remember, referring to God's promises. So Nehemiah is reminding the people of God in Jerusalem, remember the covenant. That's where passion starts. That's where I think it ends and starts there and ends with the beauty of saying, I'm going to continue. But he also says this, he calls on them to repent. And he calls on them to turn about face from the way that they're living. And it's important to see that. See, even in 1 Kings, when Solomon was dedicating the temple, the presence of God, to the people in Israel, he mentioned this in verse 29 of 1 Kings 8. He says, That your eyes be made open night and day toward his house, the place which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. He's saying that I want you to understand that right here, right now, this is the presence that I have for you. This is your presence, Lord, and I want your name to be glorified in this presence. Today, you and I have the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who's permanent and dwelling in us. And we can go with great passion. We have access to the Father with great passion to say, Lord, here is my prayer. I cry out to you. You know, when we look at the other verses here, verse 7, verse 8, going into verse 9 and verse 10, I want to read this to you. Remember the word, verse 8, that, you, that commanded your servant Moses saying, he goes on to say this, he's saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments to do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen for you to make your name dwell. They are servants, your servants, your people whom you have redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. The beauty of the passion I hear in Nehemiah's prayer. Well, I want to read something to you from Deuteronomy 30, verse 1 through 6. Now, watch how identical this is. Nehemiah's going back to what God already promised. Listen to this. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the cursing, 
which I have set before you. And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And return to the Lord your God and you and your children. And obey his voice and all that I command you today. With all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore you and your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven... From there, from the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you in the land that your father possessed, and you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. He was praying a pouring of a blessing on God's people because they were willing to trust him. Nehemiah was recalling, he was remembering God's promise in Deuteronomy chapter 31 through 6 by reciting it again. You and I have that opportunity. Our passion must grow. We must ask, but I'll tell you, I think your passion and my passion will grow when we spend time in the presence of God. When we ask him to do a work, I know he can do it. I know he's able. Maybe you have an impossible situation as the worship team is coming up. I want to ask you, What's that impossible situation? What does God want to do in you and through you? Where does he want to do a work in you? I want to ask you to bow your heads and just close your eyes. I just want to pray for you to ask that question. Where is that obstacle in your life where God can make it an opportunity? I believe he can. I know he can, and he'll do it as he pleases. But let me just pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for today reminding us that we need to be a people who are passionate to be in your presence. That no matter the obstacle, no matter the difficulty, no matter the trial, no matter what seems impossible, you are able to do the impossible. The beauty of seeing Nehemiah's life is that he entered into the presence of the king and the king granted him to go back to Jerusalem. What a miracle. What a miracle. God, thank you for showing that to us today. Lead us to where you want us to go to see another miracle being done in our lives for your sake, for your glory, in Jesus' name.